Let's, uh, we're going to go right to John chapter 6. New chapter. Always a joyous occasion when we crack a new chapter. I think, gosh, it took us about A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It took us like seven or eight weeks just to get through chapter 5, I think, at least. So here we go with chapter 6. Another one of those really famous Bible stories, the story of the loaves and the fishes. So let's read, I'm going to read verses 1 all the way down through 15. Quite a lengthy passage here. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. It's a great story. We're all familiar with it. But there's always something new to learn as we dig into your word together. We ask you to bless this time of Bible study now this morning. Just speak to our hearts and our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> After these things, if you recall, uh, prior to this chapter, <clears throat> Jesus and the disciples had gone down to the feast in Jerusalem, as we mentioned previously, some debate over which feast it was. The most common belief is it was a Passover feast. Could have been also tabernacles. Nonetheless, they went down there. He was performing miracles. And then that led to the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Then his encounter with the Pharisees where they're challenging him for healing the man on the Sabbath and telling him to take up his bed and walk. So these are the events. But there's various events that are recorded in the other Gospels that are believed to have taken place in the time period between chapters 5 and 6. It's been pointed out by numerous people that 
unlike the other three Gospels, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels, like the word synopsis. And so they all follow a very similar storyline. They cross-reference with one another uh, very closely. Gospel of John is a whole different animal, if you will. And John did not attempt to be as chronological as the others and portraying Christ from a very unique position. And so there's, uh, there's gaps, basically, in John's story that are filled in by the other Gospels. Uh, for example, <clears throat> the beheading of John the Baptist, Mark chapter 6. Um, there's also a reference uh, in, in John 3.24. But the disciples preached throughout Galilee, Mark 6. The multitudes of people were curious about Jesus. Herod Antipas was seeking Jesus, Luke chapter 9. And so most Bible scholars believe that between chapters 5 and 6 of John, uh, there's about a six-month time period there. Six months transpires between chapters 5 and 6, just to give you an idea. So things are accelerated. And that's true, really, of the entire Bible. And I was just thinking about this the other day, because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I feel pretty, uh, what word to use? Not as effective as I could be, not as uh, strong of a believer as I should be, and so forth. Do you ever feel that way? Because you compare yourself with the great men and women of the Bible, but then the Holy Spirit reminded me, wait a minute, all the stories in the Bible are very compacted. And basically, we get the highlights and some of the lowlights, too, right? In the lives of the great men and women of God who have gone before us. But it's all very compacted. And so there are time periods in between the great events that we read about in the Bible where those great men and women of God that we look up to and admire were going through the exact same things that you and I go through. And so I was encouraged by that. The Holy Spirit really encouraged me. Because, yeah, we do uh, compare ourselves to them, and that's okay. The Apostle Paul said, Be ye imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ. And so, uh, God has given us examples from his word of people that we can aspire to be like. But, you know, in James chapter 5, it talks about the fact that Elijah was a man just like you and everybody else. And yet he was able to stop the rain for three years. Remember that? And so we need to remember. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I can get discouraged. I feel like I'll never measure up to that person or that person. And I have friends in the ministry that are pastors. And I look at them and I say, wow, I wish I could be more like them. I really admire them. I respect them. They're godly men. They're holy men. But again, at the end of the day, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So anyway, the gap. Six months. Things are happening. The other Gospels record some of those events. But after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. Now, according to Luke 9.10, the place he went to was Bethsaida on the northeast shore of Galilee. And then John points out that the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias. 
Herod Antipas, who was the ruler over that region, built a city on the western side of Galilee called Tiberias in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius, hence the name Sea of Tiberias. And Tiberias is a modern city there today, been there numerous times. It's a lot of fun to go there on the western shore of Galilee. But there are several names associated with the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, Gennesaret, Tiberias are the same in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is the Sea of Kinnereth. So when you see these various names, it's all referring to the same body of water. And Jesus and his disciples crossed over to the northeast shore at Bethsaida. And then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. As we'll see in this chapter, again, the story of the loaves and the fishes, this multitude, we, 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 as we read through the passage, it told us there were 5,000 men. But what is often pointed out accurately is that they would not have been alone. They would have had wives and children with them more than likely. And so the number could have been as more like fifteen to 20,000 people. Because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. So the multitude of healings that Jesus had performed, and even some raising from the dead, uh, Jesus and his disciples were actually seeking solitude and refreshing, trying to have a little retreat there on the northeast shore of Galilee. Uh, but his miraculous ministry couldn't help but attract large crowds uh, seeking his healing touch. And that's probably one of the advantages to that time period versus today. Uh, in the modern world, particularly in the first world where you and I live, at least for the time being, we have access to so many medical options, don't we? That oftentimes the idea of actually praying and asking for God's healing touch comes way down the list. First the medicine cabinet, then Walgreens, then the emergency room. Right, and then somewhere down the line, we might actually remember to ask God to heal us. They didn't have those options. And so they were really drawn to Jesus as they witnessed uh, his miraculous ministry. <clears throat> he went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. This, the high ground that rises up on the east side of Galilee, actually probably corresponding to the modern area that we know as the Golan Heights. And I've been up there also, and we actually went up and looked across the border into Syria. And it's amazing, you can, even though it's just along the border there, you can see the results of the ongoing warfare that always seems to be taking place in that region. But again, another one of the uh, accomplishments of our previous president was he actually publicly stated he acknowledged the Golan Heights as being the property of Israel. He's also the one who actually moved our embassy to Jerusalem. So he takes a lot of criticism, a lot of flack, a lot of heat. In fact, right now they're trying to put him in jail. But he's done more for the nation of Israel than any other president. And so on and so forth. So that tells you something, doesn't it? When you step out for the right things... You shouldn't be surprised if you get attacked. It's that simple. 
That's why more people don't step out for the right things. They don't want to deal with the attack. Okay. Verse 3. We got there. He's there with his disciples. Again, seeking a bit of a retreat, but anticipating an onslaught from the multitudes that are soon to appear. Now the Passover, so here we have a specific reference to the feast that's coming up. The Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This, is G, this would be Jesus' third Passover since beginning his public ministry. So this is actually, again, the timeline. You see how it's compacted. We're only in the sixth chapter of John, but already we're only about a year away from his crucifixion. And I've mentioned this before, but that's another unique thing about the Gospel of John. A good portion of the book, about one half of John's Gospel, covers the last few weeks of Jesus' life here on earth. And so we get a very focused view of those final weeks uh, with Jesus here on earth. A feast of the Jews. Now this is an interesting comment from John, who, as you know, was Jewish. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist was Jewish too, but this is John the Apostle writing. But if you take this comment and the previous comment regarding the Sea of Tiberias, remember he went out of his way when he mentions the Sea of Galilee, he also refers to it as the Sea of Tiberias. Why would he do that? So we can conclude from this gospel that John's gospel is intended for a wider audience, Gentiles if you will, rather than just Jewish people. And certainly, you know, having uh, grown up in the Lord in Calvary Chapel under Pastor Chuck Smith, I learned early on that uh, a really good way to get a new believer started uh, in their relationship with God was to encourage them to start with the Gospel of John. It has, it's just jam-packed with very important theology, beginning with the very first chapter in the beginning uh, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, spelling out very clearly that Jesus is God and He's co-creator with God, and going on from there. So if you're ever you're, um, you're trying to help someone who's just getting started in their faith, it's always a good idea to recommend they start with the Gospel of John. In fact, at one point years ago, uh, Calvary Costa Mesa came out with a kind of a comic book version of the Gospel of John, something with appealing graphics that could be given out, especially to young people, to encourage them to read the Gospel of John. So this is a very important book. And uh, so as we take time to study it over the next year or two, <laughs> we'll dig in deeply. <clears throat> so the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. It was actually just a couple of weeks away. Verse 5, then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So here they come, and he turns to Philip. Why Philip, of all the twelve? Because Philip was actually from Bethsaida. We learned that in John 1.44. And so he would know, you know, where McDonald's and Jack in the Box and all these places were. Of course, none of those would be kosher, so I'm jesting. But Philip would know where the local places were where food could be purchased. But we'll see in, uh, uh, that 
Jesus' real intention in asking this question is to set up a teaching moment for his disciples. Jesus knows where to get the bread. And I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, but many years ago I heard this uh, expression that uh, witnessing, sharing your faith, is like one beggar telling another beggar where to get the bread. Jesus knows where to get the bread. In fact, he tells us in the Gospels, he is the bread of life. So this is a setup, if you will. But he asked Philip this rhetorical question, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now the other Gospel writers record that prior to this upcoming miracle, Jesus continued to teach and heal the multitudes till it was near the end of the day. Again, John gives us a more condensed version of what takes place. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, all talk about this, but it's been pointed out that as you follow the ministry of Jesus, yes, he was famous for his miraculous ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, but you will find as you study through John and the other Gospels that Jesus' highest priority was always teaching with signs and wonders following, confirming the truth and the accuracy of his teaching. The people were focused on the miracles. Jesus was focused on the teaching and the preaching. It says in verse 6, he said this to test him. Jesus is testing Philip and ultimately the other disciples. For he himself, Jesus, knew what he would do. He's testing Philip's faith and the others as well. You see, Jesus' proposition to Philip, practically speaking, was impossible. Even as he's asking him the question, where can we get the bread to feed these people? He's asking him something that's impossible. Jesus knew what he would do. He knew that the only, only his miracle-working power could remedy this situation. And if you recall, in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, so guys, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah, this person, that person. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter rises up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus also asked them, are you two going to also going to depart from me? Because other people had been turning away. And Peter again says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere else to go to get life, to get eternal life, to get spiritual life. And so here we have the same thing. The only answer to this situation is the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. So Philip answers him, he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. And so the, he's, he's um, putting forth the idea that even 200 days wages, that's about what he's talking about here, Who 200 denarii, about a denarii a day, that even that wouldn't be enough. That was the average wage for a peasant or an unskilled laborer, which was a large percentage of the populace. Even that wouldn't be enough. Even if we had that much money, which we don't, 
Jesus and his traveling band of disciples certainly didn't have these kinds of resources. He says 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little, not even a feast per se, but just enough to sustain them. Sustenance. Even 200 days wages wouldn't take care of it. And then maybe to be able to find that much bread all at once. Again, just an impossible situation. But this is kind of interesting. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So Andrew, Andrew is seeking a practical, natural solution to the problem, but also recognizes the impossibility of the situation. Have you ever been in that place in your life? You're looking for a practical, natural solution, but even as you're doing that, you realize this, is, this isn't going to work. This is impossible. Now, the barley loaves here remind us of the prophet Elisha's feeding of 100 men with 20 barley loaves, 2 Kings chapter 4. But, of course, Jesus is far above Elisha here. But there is a kind of a comparison there. So then Jesus says in verse 10, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and number about 5,000. Interesting. So the people had been standing perhaps all day long, but it was the practice in biblical times for the people to stand up and for the teacher to sit. I kind of like that idea. <laughs> Might try it. No, actually, I like to move around. You know that. But that was the normal practice. The teacher would sit. And I remember uh, during the midweek service at Calvary Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck used to come out and sit on a stool and just teach for like an hour and a half, really long. Uh, but that was the practice in biblical times. And so they'd been standing, and Jesus tells them all to sit down. It was time for them to sit and rest while Jesus whips up dinner for fifteen to 20,000. Much grass in the place. So one of those grassy knolls overlooking Galilee there, northeast shore. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Remember, five loaves, that's all they had. How many decent-sized pieces could you get from one of these small loaves? I'm thinking of, I don't know how big they were, but... I'm thinking of uh, Outback Steakhouse. Uh, um, what's the place on Wyoming, you know, the steak place there? What is it? Black Angus. Black Angus. You get those little loaves you get there? They're great. They're not real big. I don't know how big these were, but how many substantial sized pieces could you get from one of these small loaves? There were five loaves, 5,000 people. That's one loaf for every thousand men, not counting women and children. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, distributed them to the disciples. So you got five loaves, you got twelve disciples. Um, that's really not even two pieces of bread per disciple. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking when Jesus hands them these pieces of bread? But you know what? You know, over the years we've had so many different 
potlucks and church dinners and so forth. And I know some people get real stressed out. Maybe even sometimes I have. Oh, man, I don't think we're going to have enough food. Is Val in here today? <laughs> but you know what? There's always enough and there's always some left over. And we're running around trying to find people to take it home with them. So that's what happens here. Okay, he gives thanks. He distributes to the disciples, the disciples to those sitting down. Now, you have to give some credit here to the disciples in their obedience to Jesus. Because even as they're facing this impossible task, and they're breaking up these five little loaves and two fish, loaves and two fish. Yeah, likewise the fish, two fish. And it tells us here, as much as they wanted. So we go from five loaves and two fishes to an all-you-can-eat. How is this possible? A miracle is unfolding right before everyone's eyes. After two years of living, eating, and sleeping with Jesus, the disciples, I believe, had learned the value of... Now, some people would view this as a negative term, but I, the disciples had learned the value of blind obedience to Jesus. Apart from Jesus, blind obedience is a risky proposition at best. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, I actually recommend blind obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes, We walk by faith, not by sight. And so even his disciples see this measly little amount of food in their hands, out of obedience to Jesus, they start distributing, and guess what? It just keeps coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that's a constant battle, a constant struggle we all face, I think. We tend to focus more on what we can see, and oftentimes what we can see will lead us in the wrong direction. Uh, we can be deceived by it. So Paul says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Certainly that's what the disciples did in this situation because if they would have fixed their eyes on what was seen, they would have given up right then and there. And that's a lesson to each and every one of us. The Bible says with God all things are possible. With God nothing is impossible. And yet oftentimes we forget that, don't we? And we allow ourselves to become overwhelmed by what seems to be an impossible situation but then we leave Jesus out of the equation. Here, he's the only one with the answer, and you could say that for the rest of us. I, I like to say that no matter what the question is, Jesus is the answer. Amen. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And you see, our hope in Christ is a sure and certain hope. We sometimes put our thing, hope in the things of this world, the people of this world, and those are uncertain. They're not guaranteed. But when we put our hope in Jesus Christ, it's absolutely guaranteed. Faith, which is what the disciples are exhibiting here by walking in obedience to Jesus, taking this measly portion of food and beginning, beginning by faith to hand it out, to distribute it. 
They were exhibiting Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 12, so when they were filled, the people, everybody was full. I was very full on Thanksgiving. How about you? I handled it pretty well this year. I didn't eat hardly anything until Thanksgiving dinner. I think I had an English muffin or something, and then we had Thanksgiving dinner about 1, 1.30 at uh, my daughter's in-law's house, and it was really good. Usually I can't make it past the first plate, but this time I had two plates. And I was actually still doing fairly well. I was pretty full, but then I went home and I made the mistake of having a piece of pumpkin pie, and that put me over the top. So they're all filled. They're not just, they didn't just get a, a barely enough to... to you know, satiate their appetite. They were all full, filled. Not temporarily satiated, but filled. God doesn't just give us enough to get by, folks. I think sometimes people take that attitude, you know, but he doesn't give us just enough to get by. And I'm speaking spiritually here because as we always like to talk about, that's God's ultimate end goal, end game, as you get older, let's be honest, you probably start to think a little bit more about physical death than you did when you were younger, right? But God is always reminding me physical death is so insignificant and unimportant. What counts is eternity. Jesus didn't come just to save our physical bodies. That's part of the package. We're going to get a new one, one that will never wear out. Does that sound good? But, first and foremost, he has created us in his image as eternal beings with a spirit, with a soul. And what happens to that spirit and that soul is what matters most to God and should matter the most to us. It's always comforting when God reminds me of those things. You know, sooner or later, in God's timing, we're all going to depart from here. The important thing is, where are you going after this? Are you going to spend eternity with God in paradise? Or are you going to spend eternity separated from Him in a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? How sad it is that for most people, their entire focus is on the things of this world. You know, that one of those expressions that... Uh, it bugs the heck out of me, but, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard that one? That's the exact opposite of you can't take it with you. What part of you can't take it with you do people not understand? They were filled. Psalms 23.5, famous words of King David. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. See, God doesn't do anything halfway. He doesn't give us just enough salvation to get by. He gives us abundance in Christ. 1 Corinthians, or Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think... God wants us, 
wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. Think about that. We all want to be blessed, right? But the blessings God has for us are even greater than the ones that we would ask for ourselves. According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. First Corinthians 2, 9. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Think about that. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And I'm sure we've all tried at least to picture in our minds what it's going to be like to be with him in paradise, but I, our hearts and minds aren't even capable of fully conjuring up the fullness of what that looks like and what that's going to be. But it's, a, it's way beyond what we can imagine John 10.10, we talk about this one a lot. The thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, there is no fullness of life without Jesus Christ. There's biological life. There's some, you know, uh, emotional fulfillment at times, you know, carnal fulfillment at times. But there is no fullness of life outside of Christ. But in Christ, there is fullness. And we know that what causes people to pursue many of the things that they pursue is because of that emptiness. And some have described it as a God-shaped vacuum in your heart that only God can fill, right? There's no fullness outside of Christ. But sometimes we forget that in Christ there is fullness. It's sad when as believers we go around bummed out, burned out, depressed. It is a battle. We have an enemy. He never sleeps. But we need to constantly remind ourselves that in Christ we have fullness of life. Not just barely getting by. And again, it has nothing to do with how much money you have in your bank account. Happiness is fleeting. Joy should be permanent regardless. It, it does not depend upon our situations, our circumstances. Our joy in Christ is a result of that fullness that he gives us. In fact, that's the witness. That's the testimony. People will say, how can you be so joyful in the midst of this trial that you're going through? You just lost a loved one. You just crashed your car. You just lost your job. And yet I see a smile on your face. How can that be? Because Jesus lives inside of me. And I have fullness in Christ. And I, for one, never get bummed out. <laughs> you know that's not true. But again, we all should get bummed out a lot less often than we do. Because Jesus lives inside of us. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the master of the universe, the savior of the world. And finally, Philippians 4.19. I know the faith teachers like to use this verse to preach prosperity 
And Paul certainly included in this statement is the idea of, of material provision, but it goes way beyond that. Just like the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Do you think that just means physical bread? No. It means daily sustenance, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. Give us everything we need, Father, to live this day in victory. It's the same thing here. Paul says, my God, to the Philippians, shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And certainly all of our needs speaks of a lot more than just three meals a day, right? It speaks of what we need mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And God promises through the Apostle Paul, my God shall supply all you need according to his riches and glory by, again, we talked about this at the beginning, the only answer for this impossible situation with the loaves and the fishes is Jesus Christ. His miraculous power to remedy an impossible situation. And here again we see it. God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. There's no fullness apart from Jesus Christ. So he tells the disciples, when all the people were full, imagine a crowd that size all burping at the end of this great meal Jesus has provided. Right. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Folks, <laughs> it just gets better and better. They even had leftovers. Again, proving the abundance of God's love and provision. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So not only did the people all get filled and they had leftovers, each disciple received a to-go box. Twelve. To me, this is so incredible. It just makes you, When I was putting together this message, I just started laughing. I thought, this is so funny. It was left over by those who had eaten. By the way, God's not a germaphobe, so if it's blessed, it's blessed. I have, a good, I have a good friend that's a germaphobe. He won't ever share food with me. God's not a germaphobe. Verse 14. Then those men who they had seen, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Those men being the ones who had just been the recipients of this miracle, the disciples as well as the thousands of others, are now saying, well, Jesus is the prophet. We've talked about this before. The prophet foretold by Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 17, 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. And whenever it's always with a big P. So this is a very special, specific individual being spoken of in the Old Testament. Whenever it's capitalized, it's referring actually to Jesus. The prophet foretold by Moses. God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from your midst. 
Moses was a prophet. He was a savior, a type of Christ, if you will, delivering his people out of bondage in Egypt. From your brethren, so that tells us the prophet will be Jewish. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. The people couldn't handle it. That's why Moses represented them, went up on the mountaintop, spoke with God. When God began to manifest himself to the people, they freaked out. And so again, just like Jesus is our mediator, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Moses was a mediator. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, Moses, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, big P, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so, yes, this is a prophecy a messianic prophecy from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. The people are now acknowledging they believe Jesus to be this prophet, but they didn't necessarily see that the prophet and the Messiah were the same person. In fact, in Jewish theology, they believed in two separate individuals coming. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by fierce, a force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So here the people are moved by emotions, by feelings. They're in awe of his miraculous power. And they were inclined to proclaim Jesus their king, but they did not as of yet recognize him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They had no concept or understanding. And just like many today who view God perhaps as uh, just some kind of a miracle worker. They want what they can get from him. The blessings, the miracles. They don't understand the need for repentance of sin, confession of sin, salvation that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They had no context, concept, or framework for a suffering Messiah. Jesus didn't come the first time to be enthroned upon the throne of David. He came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Prince of Peace who rode into a donkey, rode on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's coming back again as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. You know what? And even today, many people actually view Jesus as a failure. I've heard, I've heard this numerous times. The poor victim of an unjust system. And even some view Judas in that light. They feel sorry for him, that he was misled, he was deceived, but he allowed Satan to enter him. Jesus, of course, was not a failure. And that these people view the miracles recorded in the Gospels as faded memories from long ago. Again, we see things condensed in the scriptures. We see the record of Jesus' miraculous ministry here on earth over a period of three, three and a half years. But the thing that people don't realize, this has been one of our themes this morning. We walk by faith, not by sight. We fix our eyes on that which is not seen, 
Nobody saw anywhere near enough food to feed all those people. And what so many people today don't realize, including many in the church, I would say, because let's be honest, there are many under the umbrella of the church that are still seeking Jesus for his miraculous ministry, not realizing the greatest miracles are the ones you cannot see with the naked eye. No greater miracle than that of conversion, salvation, regeneration, taking us from death to life, from darkness to light. That's the greatest miracle of all. Amen. Let's stand. <clears throat> Roy, come on up. We're going to take some time to pray. But first, I'll have a show of hands for those who have prayer requests. Okay, pray God bless you. Praise the Lord. We'll pray over those in just a minute. First of all, though, Father, we want to thank you for the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for the many times when we forget that. Lord, when we don't allow you to manifest your joy through us. Lord, that we allow the things of this world to get us down and we forget about that abundant life that we have in Christ. Lord, help us to be mindful of that daily, to not allow situations and circumstances to get us down, but to fix our eyes on that which is not seen. And Lord, we are reminded that you are the author and the finisher of our face. Help us to keep our eyes on you, Father. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the greatest blessing of all, the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of salvation and eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that you draw them to yourself right now, that they would make that decision to turn their life over to you, Father, to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to allow your Holy Spirit to fill them, to come and live inside of them, that they might be born again and begin on that pathway to eternal life. Father, I lift up those with health issues today. We've talked about the fact that uh, it's appointed for man once to die and then there's judgment, so the real focus should be on eternity, but we'd like to feel as well as we can while we're here. So we ask for your healing touch. For those who are struggling, Lord, I can think of Ryan Mayfield who has COVID right now. We ask you to pour out your spirit upon him, heal him. Lord, any others in our congregation that might be struggling with COVID or the flu or any other affliction or even perhaps a potentially terminal illness, Lord, we know that you are the final arbiter. You have the final say on when we die, how we die. Lord, our lives are in your hands. We pray for healing from all manner of illness, disease, affliction, injury. We lift them all up to you. We pray for comfort, strength, peace, and healing upon those uh, that are ailing today, Lord, whether they be here in person right now or watching online or someone at home that we're thinking of and praying for. We lift them all up to you. Lord, for relationships, we pray for healing, restoration for marriages, friendships. Lord, we know that the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. We read that this morning. He wants to divide us, tear us apart, separate us, divide and conquer, but we ask that you would bring us back together with those people that we are out of sorts with, 
whether it be a marriage or friendship or whatever. We lift them up to you. We also lift up mental and emotional issues. Lord, we know that anxiety, depression are tremendous problems in our world today. But again, if we bring it to you, you promise that your peace that passes all understanding would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we lift up those issues to you, Lord. We ask you to take our anxieties, our fears, our worries, our doubts. Take them all and we lay them down at the foot of the cross. And finally, Lord, for, for financial issues, this can be a fun time of year, but for many people it's also a strenuous time of year because money might be short, resources might be uh, low. We pray for your provision. We read about that today, and we know that you do promise to take care of us on the material level, but even more importantly, the spiritual level. But we lift up the, Lord, we live in a material world, and so we need resources. We ask you to provide for us, and we will be quick to give you the glory and the honor we thank you and praise you and ask you to receive now our offering of praise in Jesus' name. Amen.